Hello and welcome to Cast a Pod to Your Witcher. I'm your co-host Dov. I'm your co-host Aaron. I'm co-host Max. And today we're discussing season one, episode one of the Netflix series The End's Beginning. It might be a good idea to start with um, a little bit of introduction about both who we are, how we got into the Witcher series, and uh, uh, like uh, the the sort of like general structure in which we'll be discussing things, I guess, right? So I'm probably the, well, definitely the host with the least experience with this series. I only got into it uh, when the show was released. And I actually didn't even watch it right away when the show was released. So I think January uh, 3rd was when I started watching the show and I just fell absolutely in love with it. And uh, now I'm most of the way through the books and hoping to play the game soon. So uh, I, my experience started with it, um, reading a review of the original Witcher game on Teletext in the late 2000s. <laughs> uh, and it, That's a throwback for you guys. <laughs> only 90s kids will remember. <laughs> only 90s British kids will remember. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I read it, it sounded like a very labyrinthine, overly complicated, top-down strategy game with completely broken combat mechanics. So I, naturally, I assumed this sounds extremely my jam. Uh, so <laughs> a couple of years later, when I finally got a gaming computer that could run it, I played through it and again, just completely fell for the lore. Um, but never really followed through with it really into the books or anything like that because I didn't really, couldn't really find the books, didn't know what they were called, weren't, wasn't really overly aware of them. And then I saw a playthrough of Witcher 2 on YouTube well, during my undergraduate sometime in 2010. And again, I was like, oh, I remember this. This is cool. I've played the first. This all seemed very familiar. And again, just completely fell in with it. And uh, after that, was faced with the many years long wait for Witcher 3, which I put probably 300 hours into it. Um... Yeah. <laughs> if, if, like, if, I, if you look at my Steam... Uh, like I play like a lot of Paradox interactive games games as well as as and as any Paradox like player can tell you, mm. those games are usually the ones that like rack up the largest like you know hours played counts. But mine it's is background still gaming, which are free somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so after I'd um, tanned The Witcher Three, um, soon after after I finished the DLC, there were rumors that they were doing a TV show. Um, and of course, you know, we had the screens of uh, Henry Cavill as Geralt of Rivia, and everyone kind of took a sharp in- intake of breath and thought, oh no, <laughs> this could be very bad, uh, until the first trailer came out, and like every other devout Witcher fan, uh, my interest was insanely piqued, and after that was when I thought, I- I'm going to read the books so I'm not spoiled, and much like Heron has described, uh, I started reading them at the tail end of last year, and I'm on to the last book now. After having a reading drought of maybe two books in ten years, I've gone through six in less than that month. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I started reading them, what, two weeks ago at most, and I'm most of the way through the second last book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Myself, for those of you who have already forgotten my name, I'm Dov. I, I'm the token, actual Eastern European of this, of this podcast. So as you might imagine, I literally grew up with The Witcher because I, I read the first book at the way too young age to read The Witcher book of 12. Uh, um, because, <laughs> believe it or not, I got it as as a gift in my middle school's Secret Santa. <laughs> um, 
which is which is I don't think anyone in the universe has the same Witcher story as I do. <laughs> um, but um, I absolutely fell in love with it already then. Although, like being quite young, I still didn't like quite grasp how genius the series was. So I didn't like totally get into it. Um, back then, it took a couple of years, but um, by the time I uh, like un- uh, unlike probably most people like by the time i actually played the games i had read all the books so like as you can see like between all three of us we've got like quite a quite a different level of uh like uh, quite quite a different like length of time in which we've been involved with the witcher so to speak i think one of my friends joe who's like a film and theater student or something like that a media guy he sort of talks a lot about intertextuality and how everyone's impressions of media are formed by the order in which you consume it or read it or view it or whatever. And I think that's here we've all come from very, very different directions. Like my, another example would be Hannibal, where you've had the films, the book and the TV series. Um, you know, I, I watched the films, then read the books, then the TV series came out, whereas my partner watched the TV series with me, then went to the books. And so well, you have a completely different take on what the characters look like and who how they interact with the world and how they've been projected and by the different form, which I think is very interesting to think about. Mm -hmm. And we're also coming at it from pretty dramatically different backgrounds. I mean, we're all different ages. Um, I'm from Canada. Um, Mags is Scottish and Dov is Lithuanian. So we've got sort of a a variety of backgrounds that we're coming to the text from as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like what uh, you guys as the listeners will probably find probably the most interesting, just how our backgrounds interact that speaking of which and by the way i was just gonna say this to you guys like this is not relevant to like today's episode at all but uh you know how like the ost for the for the tv series dropped a couple of days ago it has it has a completely uh-huh. unprompted and i don't know where it comes from reference to lofanian mythology because one of the tracks is named giltine the artist and giltine is the lofanian goddess of death uh uh like like the pagan oh. pre-christian goddess of death and uh, and also now just the generic term for the for the Grim Reaper, um, like. But I don't think there is any character by that name in any incarnation of the Witcher series. So it's just a really cool random reference to Lufaded mythology. Huh. In a series which is dotted with all sorts of references to Slavic and Norse mythology. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, um, so you know, I was quite happy with that. I was, I was like, it's like. Name, name a random character in the in the TV like the, a newly introduced character in the TV series after Lufanian mythology, and I will be genuinely impressed with you guys. <laughs> anyway, shall we explain to um, our our listeners how this is more or less going to work? Well, I understand our plan is to first do one episode on each episode of the TV series, yes, and fit that in with a wider yeah discussion on where it fits in with the canon and the lore and all that kind of stuff um and how it progresses because the first series is basically the first book and a bit i bits from the first two short story collections um and that so today we'll be i guess discussing like the first episode okay so i think what we're basically planning on doing is discussing the episodes as they happen in the order that they happen but we are appropriate and unspoilery contextualizing it in terms of the books and the games, where they fit in with each other and say how different characters are portrayed across different media and how that might affect the story and the storytelling. Because uh, in the first series, certain, the first series is basically the first book and a half with references to the short stories. 
um, and the short stories themselves aren't really necessarily that relevant to the story canon at all. Some of them are just world building or character building. So they're just fun to discuss on the side. And the games themselves, they draw on the source material, but not always in ways overly relevant to the direction of the main story. So we'll try and bring that in because, you know, the first game is very much a cult classic. That's problematic in its own ways, which I'm sure we'll get to. Whereas the second one was a bit larger scale and more popular and got a bit of traction on YouTube. Um, and the third one is just, you know, it, it made CDPR what they are. And it's, it's in fact, its sales grew and it had more concurrent players during this first season than it ever actually had before. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Won about 50 Game of the Year awards, so uh, we're going to spoil that. The idea is is that these first eight episodes are going to be the um, first eight episodes of the show discussed in a way that doesn't spoiler the later episodes of the show. And then ideally we will move into an episode per short story um, and then into the books. Yeah, let's get into the meat and bones of the first episode. I think it, it, it basically starts out with the whole he's fighting what you know is a spidery beastie with a human face. Uh, you know, and it's unlike any normal identifiable fantasy monster from other kinds of lore. You know, it's sort of spidery, but it's got a strange human face. And you see who you later find out is Geralt with weird black witch eyes and with a sword just scrapping with it. Uh, and I think already it's it sort of introduces a lot of the, you know, the alien concepts of this compared to a lot of other fantasy type stuff. Um, you know, the lone swordsman and the black eyes and the strange looking monster are common themes throughout the series. What I thought was really interesting about the way they chose to use this scene as the introduction um, was how video gamey it was. Like it was very heavy CG and um, the way his, his face and makeup was done was almost like sort of the border between live action and CG and even the background um, like scenery uh, had very sort of video gamey feel in terms of like there wasn't a lot of depth of field. When I first watched that scene, like my first opening of um, the Witcher TV series at nine o'clock UK time on the day it came out, which is <laughs> the second it came out. Um, uh, like I actually initially had, you know, I was obviously very, very excited because I knew this was going to be great. Like, I'd, like just everything was indicating that this would be a good adaptation. But like the the first scene, I have to say, made me a little bit nervous because like the the very high CGI feel, as you mentioned, Darren, like actually made me go, like this particular scene doesn't look that high quality in terms of like how it appears, you know, like <laughs> uh, like the 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 Kikimora, which is what you eventually later learned that monster is called, um, like it. It was actually like probably one of the better designed things in that scene. While the sort of foggy forest was like, I was like, I've seen, you know, how they put this windows wallpapers that had better design than that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, it, at the same time, um, my qualms about that were completely calmed by the fact that, like, the fighting underwater, for instance, was actually, I thought, quite well done. Also, the sword is great. The sil his silver sword is just wonderfully designed. Yeah, I thought that looked incredible. <laughs> I think what you're like fearing really with the CGI <laughs> bit was that it's going to turn out Star Wars. That's the kind of unsaid thing here. Like you know the re the, <laughs> the prequels when George Lucas came in and just CGI'd it. I I feared a little bit of Star Wars prequels. Yeah. 
which is a legitimate fear. More pertinently, perhaps, I, f I, I fear that it would look a little bit like other sort of fantasy-ish series that, like, Netflix has attempted to do, like, um, what's it called again? That uh, Chronicles of Shinar or something like that, which is, like, like, like looks extremely low-budget, you know? Like, that. I've not actually watched that much of it, but yeah. I've, like, seen clips of it that I've got. Like, I, I'm not, I can't really say I'm really tempted to watch this, although I'm a big fantasy nerd, because... Yeah. It looks like this had the budget that the first Witcher TV series had. <laughs> which is which is also a cult uh, classic, but in a but in a so bad it's good way. A bit of the room sort of way, yeah. I think when you're saying about it being looking video gamey, it is interesting because the very next scene after that is when he's walking into Blaviken. And that is almost shot for shot. The first couple of scenes mm -hmm. just reminded me so much of the initial the cinematic trailer for Skyrim. Yeah. It looks so <laughs> similar to it, and it feels the same. And it's got that um, this visual quality that actually carries through the whole episode. That starts with um, the the fog in the fight scene at the start. That in every outdoor scene, it is foggy and grey and dark, and it does have very much that visual feel. Yeah, that the start of Skyrim yeah. does. And the first game. The first game is just fog. <laughs> That's my overriding memory of it. It's dark and fog. It is admittedly just what Eastern Europe looks like in autumn. <laughs> I, I mean, wondered I'm... how much of it was a choice and how much of it was just the weather. I mean, I'm from Perthshire and you're Canadian. That's kind of what it is half the year, isn't it? <laughs> like, uh, I can speak from my experience as a Lafayette that, like, uh, you know, summer is fine. It's warm. Winter, it's cold, but um, the thing is that the summer and the winter both last like a week, and then the rest of the, rest of the year is is just autumn. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should probably clarify for the record that while we introduced ourselves as Scottish, Canadian, and Lithuanian, we are all to some degree or another Scottish. Um, yeah, so we're used to our share of Hi, uh, uh, terrible weather. Although, <laughs> although I'm Lithuanian, I'm currently <laughs> living in Glasgow, and so is Erin. That makes you both more Scottish than I am. <laughs> given I currently reside uh, south you're of the You're just border, an exile, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, um, and, and his entry into Blaviken, I think, is a very interesting kind of uh, scene, because actually, the thing is, when I was watching that, I didn't initially... When, like, when he goes into the bar and the, and the, the bartender is, you know, an arsehole who's like, all witchers can't be trusted and then like tosses him to the to what turns out to be Renfri's gang I initially f thought that that's uh, I didn't realize that was Blaviken uh, because there is another short story where Geralt like walks into a, an inn in a city and almost immediately gets into a fight <laughs> like <laughs> so uh, it, it was it was really fascinating to me because like it's kind of a staple of the entire Witcher series of him walking into pubs and getting started. <laughs> yeah, walking on. into town and being told to get lost yeah. is kind it's, of, yeah, It's, it's just what happens. <laughs> it's, it definitely scans. And it's literally every time in the game you go to get a quest, you go into the pub, it's like, oh, don't take kindly to your boat <laughs> round here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, in the games, though, they usually refer to Geralt's cat eyes, which aren't shown in the TV show, um, but are of course referred to constantly in the books because one of the reasons people fear witchers so much and they're called mutants and people know they're witchers is because their eyes look like cat eyes and golden because that's part of the mutations they undergo. But that's just not really touched on in the TV series. Like in 
Game of Thrones, they kind of got rid of the fantasy eye looks. And... Well, I mean, they did and they didn't. Um, I mean, they're still quite orange and glowy. Yeah. They're just not cat slit adjustable. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're still freakish, but not like that wild and wacky. Yeah. Like, yeah, because that's a big thing in like the, the series that parts of why people don't trust witchers is because they literally look a bit scary. Like, it is a, an entire yeah. um, looks-can-be-deceiving sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, when, you know, when he's leaving the pub after he's been started on, another thing that I think is quite clever that the series does is when he's talking to the little girl, who's, whose name I immediately forget. Marilka. Yes. She starts mentioning, oh, have you ever killed this monster or that monster? And she mentions some genu- general staple, uh, like, you know, succubi and stuff like that, then mentions a striga. And then you're like, oh, what on earth is that? Because it's not in Western folklore. It's not in any other fantasy series. And so it's, you know, you've had Kikimor and you've had Striga. And now it's sort of inferring this is not like typical Western yeah. fantasy stuff. This has got... Yeah, it's not going to be orcs and goblins and... And it's, yeah, it's like, going to uh, be different. For those of our viewers who maybe... Well, listeners, rather, who may be familiar um uh, astriga is like a traditional monster in uh, polish folklore um and some of the other ones uh like the, the mo- most of the ones you will not have heard of before will have come from slavic folklore in some way or other and that's immediately what the series taps into both the tv series and like its source material has always like tapped into that sort of thing because I think Sapkowski's entire, the, 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 the author of the book's entire thought process when he initially sat down and wrote this was, um, man, we have, like, actually, like, tons of, like, really monstrous creatures in Eastern European folklore. Why are we not utilizing them in fantasy? <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's something people forget, but, like, vampires and werewolves are also ours. Like, you guys just borrowed them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And borrowed them in a very, like, weird context of having, like, um, you know, an English writer writing about sort of a Western interpretation yeah. of Romania. Um, like, Dracula is yeah. still the funniest <laughs> thing to me just because of its world building. Because it's like, it's like, so you took the ruler of, like, one one Romanian principality, Wallachia, and you made him into a vampire, and that's, okay, fine, cool. But then you decided that he's actually the Prince of Transylvania, which is a completely different principality across a mountain range. (laughs) (laughs) This is literally like uh, if I wrote a book about werewolf King Richard the Lionheart of France. (laughs) Like, it's, 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 it's... it's close. But it's like, close. It's not the same thing, right? It's like... close. <laughs> uh, so going back to the scene, um, before they leave the the pub, obviously this is where Renfrey gets introduced. I think they did such a good job of establishing her character mm. right away in just this short scene. So you get this immediate sort of impression that she's um, un- really unusual. The way she um, kind of commands immediate unquestioning obedience i don't know if you noticed but like in that inn she's the only person who wears red yes she stands out visually from the crowd like you'll agree i think you'll agree with me dove actually i think renfrey in this looks like triss looks in witcher 2 but with her hair not tied up yeah she's wearing the same clothes she kind of does yeah (laughs) 
Like, uh, which which is an easy thought to think about. Uh, oh yeah, like... yeah. Let's not go into that. <laughs> yeah, please don't make me think about that. I love Renfrey. She's uh, like, um, she's like my sword girl I, icon. I do, I so... do adore Renfrey as a character, and I think this is a very good incarnation of her. I think the actor was chosen perfectly. I hope she gets yeah, all the jobs going forward because, <laughs> like, she deserves them. Because she was done mm-hmm. very well. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like honestly, in terms of like secondary characters, Renfrey manages to steal the entire show by appearing in only one episode. Yeah. Well, I think that's really appropriate because um, the things that happen in this episode are pretty foundational to sort of our understanding of uh, Geralt's um, morality and motivations. Yes. Centrism. Centrism. <laughs> 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 yeah. That's that's not wrong. We'll definitely have to do an ep- an entire episode at some point about like the politics of the Witcher and what they imply because there's a lot of ways yeah. to interpret it like all yep. over the place. Oh yeah, we can definitely <laughs> we can definitely do a supplemental episode about <laughs> the politics of the Witcher. Yeah, <laughs> I do. One of the good things about the scene as well is that it does start to hint at a lot of the subtle like dark humor of the series, like just the conversational quiet little <laughs> things that happen in it, like the bar, like uh, she asks for another beer. And the barman swaps out her tankard for the entire fucking jug. <laughs> <laughs> or like, or like, uh, when the when the Geralt like says to Marilka, like, there's been you know a, an award notice posted, and Marilka goes for Revere. Kikimoras are useful. Population control. <laughs> Yes, yeah. it's so dark. And then Marilka telling Geralt he smells, needs new clothes, and that uh, she could, she got new clothes because she killed her dog. <laughs> <Okay. Like, Yeah. laughs> Marilka is a surprisingly, like, um, how do I put this, powerful character for a 16-year-old girl in that episode. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, like have, you, have you noticed how, like, basically the entire town just, like, bows to like what she suggests at one point or other it's really weird yeah it's like, true I, I don't fully understand what's going on there maybe it's weird she's considered <laughs> the local prophetess or something thing but well, like she is the she is the alderman's daughter so that's like she is in a, a slightly powerful position there in terms of to, her to some degree but like an alderman is like an elected position like the alderman has power his daughter true. debatable you have influence <laughs> well yeah i guess power. yeah um, that's actually twice in that scene Geralt gets told that he smells and needs new clothes because <laughs> Renfrey also says that to him. I think you could make a drinking game out of this There, series. you could definitely make a drinking game out of the series and um, I've already like made several rules that, uh, that include Does that Geralt says and fuck, hmm? and, fuck. <laughs> and, and yeah. in this and I suppose we could also add Geralt is told that he smells to it because trust me <laughs> that keeps happening <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like um, like which I can believe. To be fair, that's that's completely in line with the fact that he wanders like swamps and butchers monsters. Yeah, I mean he's out out of town for weeks at a time. Sometimes is riding a horse all day every day and is yeah fighting monsters <laughs> in swamps. Yeah, I like um speaking of his horse. Yeah, I think this introduces um him just you know he's got his horse uh, outside the the big tower in. He goes, right, Morocco, you look after him. He's like, be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, we'll come back to that because it's obviously very relevant. But yeah, it's just his relationship with Roach. Roach is his, is his substitute therapist. Yeah, 
Yes. <laughs> He's his muse. No, like honestly, uh, it's it's sort of like uh, obviously we'll come to it, but uh, that that scene later on in the forest where he's talking to Roach, uh, and and Renfrey yeah, turns up and goes, "Who were you talking to?" He says, "I talked to my horse," and she goes, "That's sad." <laughs> like, just like, it's like Jesus, <laughs> harsh, is it? <laughs> but also, like, have you considered that he has no other friends? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's literally his existence to yeah. yeah. Yeah, but if yes. we want to keep it chronological, um, yeah. the the next scene is at the tower. Yeah, Strike so he arrives board. at the tower, um, leaves Roach with Morelka, um, and then when he arrives at the tower, um, I kind of love and hate this scene in equal measure, because um, I love that it's like very cheesily high fantasy. I love that the door is an illusion. I, um, I love that when he walks in, the quality of the light. Yes, as I was about to mention, it's the only place in the whole episode that isn't gray and foggy and it is bright and it is sort of summer sunset light and on the other hand shall we discuss how we all fucking hate oh Stragobor? yeah Stragobor is just the fucking worst he is he well is just played. the worst yeah he, he is awful bastard Stragobor is genuinely the most awful fucking and before prick. he even really opens his mouth we get the strong visual hint of his creepiness because he just loves to hang out in this tower with all these like naked illusions, illusions of naked women yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he also mentions for the first time i think um the witchers not having feelings which i imagine we'll discuss lots of times in the future because it's it's an overriding theme in the books and the stories but it's yeah um I think, I think it's important that the first person we hear it from is this reprehensible. Because let's piece of let's shit. put it this way, yeah. listeners. Do you believe him just from all the all the emotions that that Geralt has in the fucking first episode alone? I don't. Oh my gosh! Can <laughs> can we can we talk about how what good like face Henry Cavill gives in this scene? He has such like a face of disdain and like <laughs> loathing through so much of this scene. It's Just incredible. Stop bullshitting, Stregobor. <laughs> like, he doesn't even have that much hatred for the Kikimore when he's fighting it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's just his job. That's yeah. not. That's not personal. <laughs> it's like I. I think the that Stregobor has like earned hatred more than the Kikimora did ever. <laughs> Yeah, Kikimora's just doing its thing. It's doing population control. <laughs> yeah, so to describe sort of the scene, um, just for the, the listeners, a refresher, basically um, Stregobor um, talks to Geralt and uh, explains to him that uh, he had Morilka bring Geralt to him uh, because he wants Geralt to kill Renfri, who is, according to Stregobor, one of the prophesied uh women of or lilith's women yeah it's uh it's an old prophecy that uh women of royal blood born under a uh, solar eclipse uh called called the black sun will uh bring forth a lot of suffering and pain and blood. bring the valleys with blood and herald the end of the human race etc etc um it's, it is basically a misogynist fantasy. It's a misogynist fantasy with like a little degree of like political machination behind it because there's a there's a thing in the lore about how the re a, a huge reason why some people believe the the like the Brotherhood of Sorcerers, which is like sort of the organization for all magic users in the Northern Kingdoms, which is the sort of setting of the of this universe. Um, like the reason why they spread this legend around. Uh, some people say 
uh, is because they wanted to essentially break up marriage alliances and things like that that were inconvenient to them. Uh, like, yeah, it's, or just it's change all... patriarchal orders of you know inheritance. If they wanted to get rid of the firstborn, they go, oh, she's got the curse of the black son. So. Redfield, for instance. Uh, this isn't like it really explicitly stated in the TV in the TV series, um, but also you can infer it because it refers to her mother, her mother's death, and her stepmother. It refers to her like, stepmother as like two separate characters, yeah. and like says that her stepmother also has children. Mm-hmm. Like you can infer that like she's the eldest born. <laughs> Our listeners, yeah. pro- like 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 the clever ones among you, probably can recognize a lot of Snow White tropes coming in. <laughs> yes because there's this scene where we talk about her stepmother wanting rid of her and then sort of when she later talks about what happens to her in the woods sort of sort of a huntsman type figure yeah uh stregobor mentions this in his in his monologue to Geralt as well he says that uh they attempted to have her killed by a huntsman who took her to the woods and they found him supposedly dead with her mother's brooch jam- yeah, jammed in his ear. but she's wearing that brooch. So that's like the blat- most blatant lie that like anyone has ever s- said in the history of forever. Yeah. <laughs> like I didn't even notice that. Oh shit. Right, so the next scene is the super important one, because this is when we first meet yes, Cirilla. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, the lion <laughs> cub of Sintra. Our big green eyes. Yes. Yes, and it's such a short scene. It's like, gosh, like just a couple of minutes. Um, Again, we just get efficient. this introduction of Siri out um, in the town square playing knuckle bones with the local street urchins. Calanthe's knights ride up and take her back to the castle to. Yeah, it's a knifing ceremony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's it's Calanthe knighting her knights before potential war um and so we just get a short short scene yeah calanthe knighting her knights before potential war east flirting with calanthe um and just sort of very blatantly and this is just sort of a cute scene that's just showing this really like idyllic kind of life that cirilla has in terms of um she has the freedom to go sort of run wild in the town square she has this really fun playful relationship with her grandparents but it does show us that her parents are out of the picture because it explicitly says, like, Calanthe explicitly says to East, this is your duty as king and grandfather. So, like, it very clearly establishes to yeah. us that yes. something's wrong here. Well, not necessarily, like, wrong here, but, yeah. like, in the sense of, like, her parents are not here. And that's when probably half of the viewers yes. of The Witcher realized that they were just watching a really grim reimagining of a Disney princess story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because none of the Disney princesses have parents, so... <laughs> they, they, often well, have they don't fathers, have mothers. They, they often have, have fathers, but they don't have mothers. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, all the source material for the Disney princesses is generally the Brothers Grimm, isn't it? And all those stories are horrific. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very yeah, there's the Brothers Grimm, and then Hans Christian Andersen yeah. is for a couple of them, which are also pretty grim. So, but that scene is really short, and then we're right back to Stregobor and Geralt in the in the tower. Yes. So this is where Stregobor basically describes the curse of the Black Sun and his response to being a true believer Mm. apparently so Stregobor tells Geralt um, about these cursed women that then Stregobor hunted down, locked in towers experimented on dissected them when they died uh, insists that they all had these horrible internal mutations Uh, we get a great sort of disgusted (laughs) face from Geralt Yeah, um, Geralt Geralt interrupting him with (laughs) 
internal mutations was very spot on. Like, I, it, like yeah. yes, uh, <laughs> Stregobor just it's. You know, if if anyone watching that scene has empathy, we don't need to explain why Stregobor is such an awful human being. Like, uh, because because yeah. like yes. it's 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 bordering <laughs> on the comically evil the way it's described. Like because he basically locked these women up up in towers, tortured them, kidnapped children, and tortured them. He literally locked princesses in towers, like. That's villain. Let's be blatant here. Like, unless you can relate to the to the to the evil um, sorceress stepmother from Tangled, you're not going to relate to yeah. Stregobor. They're, they're talking about he's he's basically asking Geralt to kill Renfri in talking about this horrible misogynist thing he's done, surrounded by agencyless illusions of nude women. Yeah, that's a good point. It's it's just every layer of this guy is disgusting yep, I, that they could have possibly summoned. It really it really emphasizes that like um, a huge motivating factor here is misogyny. There's yeah. nothing further yes. to it. The other fun kind of thing he does here is conflates being a mutant with being a monster to Geralt who yeah. is yeah. a mutant. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. And you also see a lot of the contempt that Geralt has for magical wizards, sorcerers, and stuff like just when he's talking about yes. prophecies and things like that. Doesn't rhyme. <laughs> All good predictions rhyme. <laughs> that amazing line. Uh, Geralt does does establish himself as someone who really loves monologues to our to our viewers there. Uh, like he he starts off with an entire. <laughs> I'm not judging you. I've I haven't done only good in my life either <laughs> like but but if i have to choose between yeah yes like it's 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 like evil, fantastic evil. but also Geralt, you do love talking <laughs> i did so yeah so what he says to stregobor is evil is evil stregobor lesser greater middling if i have to choose between one evil or another then i prefer not to choose at all and oh, having to naive. come back to this statement is going to basically yeah. haunt him for the rest of the episode the and then the rest frankly. of the series like uh it is Geralt essentially establishing his political views so to speak uh as a witcher he believes that his code says we do not get involved we get paid in coin and uh, yeah, yeah he's a mercenary he's monster a hunter um that's that's like the defining principle and uh in fact, he's less involved in the mercenary because a, a, a usual mercenary, by definition, gets involved yeah, in politics. Yeah, he purely tries to stay just on the supernatural side of things. You have a supernatural he's, monster. He's, he's, a, killing, he's essentially he's essentially it. a policeman of the wilds, like but like a <laughs> yes. policeman for hire. <laughs> yeah. He's a security guard. He's, he's, he's a, a security guard. He's a bouncer. He's <laughs> a mallcop. <laughs> <laughs> Geralt of Rivia Molkop. <laughs> yeah. Ancient medieval Polish Molkop. Oh no. <laughs> so then we, we do get the rhyme eventually in there. Um, like Strugamore turns to Geralt and says, if with the fate of the continent at stake, is that a chance you're willing to take? There's your rhyme. That's it. And it's just like, yeah. like yes. watching that, and <laughs> like, I, I, like, especially in the TV series, just watching that scene, I constantly just like had to fucking frown because I, I was just like going Stregobor you're lying you don't believe this like you literally you yeah. literally just did yeah. something that like 
you had probably extremely fucking pragmatic motivations for doing, which is to say you were working for her stepmother and she paid you to do this. Um, and now yeah. you're trying to get out of it. Yeah, like, yeah, because the come on, please don't... I mean, I do think, I do think there is an open question as to whether Strykebor believed that there was something to the curse of the Black Sun. Not that he necessarily believed the world was going to end, but that there were magical abilities imparted by this curse that he was interested in researching and just didn't care how many lab animals he dissected. I mean, and to be fair, admittedly, like, you have to... Uh... To jump a little bit, I'm gonna try not to ignore the chronology too much, just like to point out something that happens later on. Later, at the very end, he says, uh, her mutation, it like, leads people to, you know, like, believe her and side with her, we need to extract it. And that, I think, is fucking interesting, because yeah. that basically says that, yeah, why, what are you collecting that mutation for, Stregobor? <laughs> yeah, and can you preserve the power of mutations after someone is dead? Yeah, like, like something that you well, we'll do? get into the game lore with that, because... It's, like, not totally clear, but it's implied that mutagens are, like, a thing you can extract from people. Like, like, but, like... A physical but, the yeah, thing so... is, right, um... Cool. Like, like, the point... Like, one way or the other, the point is, this is a guy who basically gives us the real motivation why he's been doing this at the end, which is, like, um, it was part politics, part the mm -hmm. fact that actually it wasn't that he was scared of these women, he f he simply wanted to utilize their unique Well, I mean, talent. the open question is also Stregobor's insistence that if she has these mutations, she's a monster. But some of her mutations are the same mutations Geralt yeah. has. He's resistant to magic. So... We're setting up this like yes. calling Geralt basically I mean, a monster yes, to his I mean, face because he's insinuating. It's that like, are you surprised monsters. that Geralt's not wanting to work with you? On this? Like, because he is basically he basically did by saying things like, "I I seem to remember that witchers don't feel anything." Like, he is basically just like, "Do you not understand how? Have you read the book How to yeah. Make How to How to Lose Friends and alien, Alienate People? Because <laughs> that's what you're doing." <laughs> Right. So back to the chronology with Sorella in the hall at this feast with uh, Calanthe and East. I really liked this scene. Um, and, and this is something I'm going to make a point of with every episode. Is I'm fairly certain that every episode of the show passes the Bechdel test. Yeah. And this is the moment where this show does, or this episode does, um, where Calanthe and Sorella are talking about um, rulership and what it means for her to be the heir to the throne and what war means for Cirilla. And this is also where we get, I think, our first clue about the timeline mm. situation. Because um, Siri says to Calanthe, uh, you know, why are you trying to shield me from this when you were my age? You'd already won your first battle mm. at Hotchbus. Yes, uh, the chaotic chronology of the series. It's, it's hinted to and stuff like that, where you have to actually pay attention to the dialogue basically random bits of like chronology lore that they drop you because it's the best way to yeah. understand and where it, you are it's one of the scene starts with it sort of again i think if i remember rightly zooming in on her eyes which in the book are constantly referred to you know her big glowing green emerald eyes and all this sort of thing there's almost a magical ethereal quality to them um there there are there are a couple of these kind of couple of things about this scene that like or shall we say not really objections so much as like mild annoyances on my part. Like, uh, first, I don't like the. I don't know if you guys noticed like the banners that they've hung from the walls. Like, they're meant to be like the banners of Sintra. I don't like them heraldically. Like, because 
because like it's 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 just very annoying to me because the Sintrid coat of arms is like this nice um it's like established in like book lore as well and it like is the same in the tv series as well uh and it's in the middle of those banners like um and it's like quite a nice like you know free golden lions rampant incidentally uh on on a on a blue field of um, course yeah and... this brings back to your pet theory about the, the voices yeah. that they should have in Sintra. yeah yeah I mean, Sintra is supposed to be Scotland, right? So... Yeah. The thing that like annoys me, like about the banners, is that they is that they took that coat of arms, but they put that on those banners in the middle of like a black cross on a white background, which is simultaneously the most annoying like color scheme ever. Like, and also, <laughs> this is gonna be a very Eastern European specific complaint, but like. On this thing, they should have probably asked some Polish people before they did that, because they accidentally, minus the actual coat of arms, replicated oh. the flag of the Teutonic Order. Oh no. Oh shit, so... that's less than ideal. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, like they, they, got, they got kicked out of the Holy Land by the Pope for being too racist. Oh wow, that's a combination. <laughs> like, oh, so, wow. you know. It's also... Uh... Oh, that's a lot. It's also, as well, I think it's worth pointing in the scene, this is the first time you ever hear of Nilfgaard as a thing existing, as an invader. Oh, yes. That silent threat that actually becomes very loud at the end of the, at the, end of the scene where, where Danek comes up to Kalanfey and says, my scouts are, have returned, your highness. They're here. And it's like, the music changes and there's a sudden, like, just slow in the air. And it's like a very solid feeling of, oh no, something bad is about to happen. Oh, there is more timeline clue in that scene. Uh, Siri goes off to dance with that um, sort of noble boy. Um, East says to Kalanthi that this reminds him of Pavetta's betrothal feast. Oh, so that'll that's be a good point. Yes. An important timeline clue later. It at, it at yeah, least places point. it relative <laughs> to later episodes. Uh, <laughs> right, so yeah. we were about to say that yes, the scene kind of quite abruptly swaps right yeah, after the news. And it starts talking about her, uh, shall we say, origin story. And you get her side of her exile story of her being taken away by some knight errant or what have you and him attempting to rape her and her you know killing him in venge in in survival in uh, my favorite yeah. thing in that scene was where she um like when initially Geralt says you killed him uh like Redfree says with my mother's brooch but there is like a playful tone in her voice like that she knows that this is a lie that's been spread mm. and like that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. She like kind of tilts her head. Is very and like Geralt immediately approach. does a. Hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's it's like it's like nonverbal yeah. cues in that are great. There's so much excellent physical acting in this whole series. Um, just like the way the characters sort of physically interact with each other. Just Absolutely, sort of, I think yes. speaks just like really high quality directing. Um, but yeah, almost immediately after that, she does say. You know, when she's telling your story, she says, Strike a Boris man robbed me, raped me, and then let me go. So you have sort of yeah, she's... the kind of confirmation from her side that actually she didn't Yeah, it's him. just another part of the lure around her and the way to attack her character. And then back to Geralt talking about evil and lesser evil. And, you know, she says, oh, why don't you kill these people that are saying these things about you? And you say, well, mm -hmm. then, because then I am what they say I am. Setting up that immediate sort of the similarity between the characters but also the massive contrast between them 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they are both these sort of like outcast, sort of orphaned mutants who have had terrible things happen to them. And yeah, his response is to not become what they say he is. And her response is, um, though, this is where she does that brilliant line that like, uh, you know, am I a monster? Am I human? If I you cut me, yeah. I bleed. Uh, if if someone ruins my, you know, if someone steals my entire life, I kill him. Yeah. <laughs> goes. Uh, so if I tell you I can neither forgive Stregoborn or renounce my revenge, does that prove that I am a monster? And Geralt says yes. And I just, like, every time when I watch that, I go, Geralt, okay, I understand why you're saying that, because you are parallelizing it to yourself in your head. Uh, but, like, also you do realize that the difference is that, like, people only say that you're a monster. Stregoborn has actually ruined this gal's life. Like... That it's like a di- it's like a different order of magnitude. Obviously, what you suffer, Geralt, is horrible. Obviously, at a very young age, a very massive choice over who to be was taken from you. That's terrible. Um, like all of this is terrible, obviously. Um, but like, uh, you don't hate anyone in the same way that yeah, she does. Exactly. Um. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, there, I just it felt like that is a really unrealistic request, and is just related to his sort of unrealistic and naive morality of of not making choices and not getting involved. Um, she doesn't have a choice. She was a princess. She did get kidnapped and raped. She did have yes, her whole life yeah, stolen from basically. her. Like she, she doesn't like, really have a choice of not getting she's involved. She's trying to. Um, she is still lost from the sheer fucking damage that, like, yeah. Yeah, rationalize it to someone who doesn't want it to be rationalized. And like, not just that. Like, she's not just avenging herself. Like, we get in Stregobor's scene. He says there were sixty of these women, and she's the last one. Yeah, according to the prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. So, how many did Stregobor put in towers? How many did he torture to death? Like, she's not just. I think we're looking at about at about at least ten. I do. Okay, I do have the book open right now, and what. Stregobor says was, uh-huh. and that's how it was with girls who were born after the born for like a whole year after the eclipse. So this might be well, girls that's who just were... a fucking excuse, right? Because you're no fucking no, no, like I'm yeah. sorry, but like yeah, that's absolutely just royal families years. and princely families, noble families used to have children all the time because they wanted as many heirs as possible and they could afford it. Of course, yeah, there's gonna be popular. girls born after yeah. the eclipse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like, at some point or other. Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, it just sounds like an excuse to me. But that is from the book, not the show. But it's just like, so even if we do just accept it, it's only like 10, but up to 60 girls. Like, she's not just avenging herself. She's avenging a terrible femicidal crime. Yeah, and but she, yeah. she, she, she should just let it go and just learn to live with the fact that Stregobor is going to live forever. I mean, this is where, this is where, for the first time, the show really establishes the universal Witcherverse rule of sorcerers are bastards. Most of them are. But, like, as as a general rule, they are. And the, the ones who aren't are the exception. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, most of them are. Yeah. So, moving on. Right. <laughs> so, we sort of leave that scene um, with Geralt telling Renfri to deal with it. And it kind of inter- it kind of cuts to um, Siri in her tower, and then there's a timeline clue here because Siri's being told by Mousak about the long, long time ago 
when princesses were locked in towers. <laughs> so they were systematically killed. And then that's intercut with the end of the battle. Yeah, they were locked in towers and systematically killed at the end. And I love how Siri just goes, you know, cautionary tales don't work on me. It's... Uh... <laughs> like, I... yeah. Which is, that's foreshadowing. Yes. Like, it's, a, it's... Yeah. it's just a cute scene sort of establishing Mousesack as a sort of parental figure of sort. Yes. Then immediately everything goes quite south quite badly and we go to the big battle scene, uh, which is essentially Battle of Hastings sort of thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, holy shit, I didn't realise that, but that like, does arrow. have like echoes yeah. of Battle of Hastings, arrow through the eye. I remember, I remember in the books it doesn't specify yeah. how he's tied, it just says, was yeah. slain at the Battle of Bardadal. But, but here, yeah, it's very much... That said, I'm gonna yeah. say this, like, like yeah. East should have worn the fucking helmet. Like, He's I'm not gonna lie. Well, you know what? I actually love this because in fantasy shows, the protagonists never wear helmets because you've got to be able to see the protagonists and everyone's like, why yeah. doesn't Jon Snow lose his head like five times an episode? Should they any fucking here we tail. have a fantasy like... protagonist not wearing a helmet and actually gets shot in the eye, so... <laughs> wear a helmet next time. Well, yeah. I do like like the the scene of the battle itself. I do like because it's you know it's quite gritty and it has the horrible feel of the grimness. It's not got that sort of traditional fantasy esque yeah. thing of the good guys versus the orcs and the bad guys and a noble fight. It's just people going ham on each other. <laughs> it's just all horror and death, yes, no exactly. glory. Nilfgaard is for the, at least for now mostly a generalized concept of danger because like they're. Uh, they wear dark armor and they just look like like you yeah. know if you didn't know anything about about the actual moral complexity of the Witcher's politics, you would you could go ah okay these are the evil they're the big bad they're the yeah. overwhelming military yeah. force. There's also a sense of honorlessness and uh, I don't know just there's a general sense of a lack well, of yeah, the honor king gets to killed. killing your enemy king with an arrow from yeah, hilltop it's... when he's in the thick of battle. Well, it wasn't, the thing is, yeah, they would either try and capture the king or ransom him or something like that. They would try and capture him, whereas yeah. Nilfgaard just like, well, we don't care about the Nordling kingdoms. We're just going to kill the entire royal family if it's an inconvenience to us. Yeah. 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 It's because they yeah. are coming mm-hmm. to, to destroy the north. world. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, so this tells us it's a different kind of war because, like, yeah, they do not care about taking an like, hostage. This is not normal for the society for for this society that we are seeing. This is not noble knights conquering. Yes, uh, the mysterious knight on horseback yeah. who shoots uh, east. Yes, fantastic shot. A hell of a shot. <laughs> it must be said. Fair play to him. Yes, fantastic <laughs> shot. I'm like lie. 300, 400 yards. I, I do. I do have to wonder if it's that sort of situation where, like, later, fucking Emperor Emir of Nilfgaard comes up to comes up to uh, like sends a message to him and just goes like, "You fucked up. You're meant to capture kings, not kill them with arrows. What the hell, dude?" <laughs> This is why I don't. This is why I had second thoughts about sending someone so young on this assignment. Um. So after East gets shot, we cut back to the castle. Ah, yes. Um. And there's Calanthe is seriously wounded. Um. And she's in her chamber with Mousesack and her knights and uh, Siri. And there's a lot of chatter that. 
between them where she's giving orders and they're looking for somebody and we don't know what's happening. They keep that sort of quiet. Um, so we're sort of in Cirilla's perspective here where she doesn't and, really and, understand uh, what's happening. There, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a wee bit of foreshadowing yeah. there uh, where Calanthe goes... When I go, it'll be far more dramatic than this. When Siri asks me if she's dying, mm-hmm. it's just like I'm like, oh wow, you're foreshadowing to the end of the episode. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, oh, that and then it cuts from there, isn't it? They have that conversation and then it cuts. Yes, many many years in the past, which is this is where we get the first hint from Renfrey's side that this is many years in the past. Because this is the scene where she comes up to Geralt. She says, she said, she mentions the Battle of Hoshibus that, ha- that has, in their timeline, only just happened. Which Kalanthi is meant to have won at yes, series so age. we know that she's old enough to be a grandmother and that she won this battle when she was like 15 yes. or 16. So we know that yeah, there's at yeah. least, you know, at least 30, 40 years mm. past. So this And scene... it's also, it's the scene with Geralt yeah. talking to his horse. <laughs> Yes, and he's talking to his horse both about sort of the philosophy he learned from Vesemir about, you know, we kill monsters, we take coin, we don't get involved. Um, but he's also talking about the first yes. monster he killed, which wasn't a supernatural was a monster picture. at all. Uh, who who uh, yeah. an attempted rapist. Uh, yes. He, uh, and I think we have like an actually a very defining moment for Geralt here, because he talks about how, uh, like, He'd ex- he he expected that like the world needs him and that like he will be showered with gratitude for like uh slaying this 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 monster doing the right thing. But in reality, uh the would-be victim of the rapist actually just threw up because of all the yeah. sight of the blood and I and then like ran yes. away. And I yeah. think it's um an interesting moment because like because like, every time every time I, w- I watch that I just go like Okay, but Geralt. Yeah, I had some issues with... I'm just saying, you see That's what I'm always thinking, is like, Geralt, like, don't be thirsty for (laughs) gratitude Um, for doing the basic right thing, which is saving... I think a bit of the issue was that, like, Geralt is not treated well by anybody, so he would like to be treated well, at least by the people who he's objectively helped. Um, Yes. Well, this is a theme not just in the show, but it's in the games as well. Like, in the games, you know... Yeah, and, and the books. books. He goes and does something heroic. Yeah. And half the time, you know, he comes back and half the village has been massacred or something. Or the villagers all crowd down and goes, you just killed that guy in cold blood. Get, get the hell out of here or set the guards on you. <laughs> and objectively, that's a reasonable reaction. Yeah, Because yeah. he has just killed someone like, in cold blood. But, like, at the end of the day, still, the fact of the matter is, Geralt, you saved <laughs> someone. You should be proud of that. Yeah. And, like... And I think it's like also interesting that although he like complains about that, uh, like in all yeah. the incarnations of the Witcher media, he consistently does things like this again, where he rescues people, uh, not expecting reward, and uh, uh, like despite all this stuff about how he says that like he will never get involved again. Yeah, he just does all the time. <laughs> Um, what I found really moving about this scene and the next scene with Geralt and Renfrey, which we kind of end up with another series scene in between, is um, we've just had this you know, this moment where we're, we're, we see how poorly treated he is by everybody, how deeply wounded he is by that, um, how he's this outsider who nobody understands and nobody likes. And then this scene and then the next scene with him and Renfrey, which I think maybe we should just talk about together because they belong, those scenes belong together. 
um, he talks to her and she lies and says she's going to leave Blaviken. Well, it's a question of whether she's lying or whether she's saying exactly true words with false meaning. Mm. Um, she says, you know, tomorrow I will leave Blaviken forever. For me, this is where like things get really ambiguous with him and Renfrey. She's telling him she's going to leave Blaviken forever. Um, I don't know whether this is just that he really truly wants to believe her because she is kind of a kindred or whether this is her like subconscious ability to exert sort of control and render people believing of her um i think she's uh, I, I think i think it's also like there there is a possible first possibility which is that redfree was actually being honest she changed her well, mind I think, overnight mm, i think what i think she is sincere about is that when he says she says to him you know i love my men and they love me but it's been a long time yeah. since anyone saw me that i think she's being sincere about but I think I think she actually does know what she's planning to do the next day and that she just wants like one night before she dies with someone who sees her for what she is, doesn't care that she's a mutant, doesn't care that she's the subject of this prophecy, you know, that he sees something yeah. of himself in her and she sees herself in him and she can be vulnerable and have like this one moment it's of intimacy. It's quite an intimate, well It's very artistic, yeah. sex scene as well, but given the fantasy genre. It is, it's, it's really yeah, beautiful. It's quite sweet. Yeah. 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 And then that, yes. of course, gets intercut with the proof uh, that she does, in fact, have some sort of supernatural ability because she gives a prophecy. Yeah. She speaks to him either through sleep or through his dreams or... And we'll still otherwise. get back to that when the fight scene with them comes on yes. because she does a few things that are kind of cool that that's really Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so then away from that scene, obviously, they're at the bat, at the at the keep and Mouse Sack has put up the magic barrier and it's starting to fall and everything's starting to go shit really and the nobles are taking the potions and topping themselves mm -hmm. and for some reason one decides instead of taking the sleepy death potion to stab it yeah i think what's going on there is a kind of martial honor thing like uh as a nobleman like it's my duty to die by the sword this is also where uh... you see um i think it's around that death scene where Calanthe is in a very bad way in talking to Cirilla as if it's the end. Yeah. Yes, and this is also where she's saying to Mosak to look for someone. Destiny may yet side with us, but we don't know what that's about because um, we're really seeing it from Cirilla's perspective. Um, and oh, this is where we get our first hint that uh, Ceres got abilities. She's literally a force screen from yes, Star Wars. And the, <laughs> yes, and the glasses shake. And uh, Mosak and Calanthe seem to know what this is about. Siri, you're a Jedi. <laughs> and they also say that that's why Nilfgaard have come. There's the there's the, the inference that they know about her magic abilities somehow. Um, or that they know she's from yes. an important bloodline. Yes. Well, I mean, even Calanthe, the scene says, you are the Lion Cub of Sintra, you are destined to grow for great things. And I don't think that's just referring to her to her royal origins. I think, like, Siri thinks that's what she Yeah, thinks. she does say... But she does say, like, find Geralt of Rivia, yes. he is your destiny, the fate of the world depends yeah, on it. Because she now believes in the whole destiny thing. Yeah. Uh, mm. And then after this scene is the first proper fight scene with Geralt, which is where it establishes yes. that he is actually a badass. <laughs> yes. Um, so I kind of get the impression that it's listening to her prophecy in his dreams that actually tells him that he should go to the market. It's not that he figures it out on his own. Oh yeah, because he didn't want to make a yeah. choice. <laughs> no, 
No, Gandalf is sadly sometimes just a little bit thick. He isn't the best at seeing through things. Well, that's the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> he is painfully nice. Uh, yes, my sweet, beautiful himbo. Um... <laughs> Um, so, yeah, so when he arrives at the market, he finds Renfri's men there, and they tell Geralt, you have to choose the lesser evil. It's an ultimatum. Yeah. Get it? Which does make me think that she knew what she was doing the mm. night before. Quite possibly, but also just as believably, like, um, she could have... I'm just thinking that, like, it's entirely possible that she could have maybe, like, decided briefly that she's going to call off the idea and then got up in the morning and gone you know what no no i can't i, I can't yeah so this fight scene is pretty so great good. um i mean the deflecting the crossbow takes them out in five seconds it's fantastic it's one <laughs> D turn yeah. <laughs> yeah i know some sword nerds have some issue with the way he uses reverse grip but like he's a super strong superhuman mutant like it doesn't matter that he's not ultimately using things the most oh are you like so good to complain like, about the fact that he deflects arrows it's like so cool and it's so slick <laughs> It's so good. Yeah, like, exactly, right? Well, like... he's he's a mutant who's super fast and super strong. He can do that, okay? <laughs> it's the first time you properly see him going ham on some guys with, like, his superhuman abilities. It's so brilliantly done. And using the art sign... To be honest, I don't... Um, I think it's only once yeah. that in the entire series that the concept of the signs is mentioned. So it might be actually... Yeah, yet mentions use art, but that's about it. Um, but, like, it might actually be worth explaining what they are, because this isn't really a spoiler, this is just lore. Um, when Geralt uses magic, it's not really magic in the same sense as it is, as, like, magic. It's not magic proper insofar as in-universe lore is concerned. It's more like, uh, it's like, if you play D&D, &D, &D, they're cantrips. They're basically, like, um, minor spells that don't actually require talent so much as just, like, very basic learning ability for like how to move around the witcher equivalent of the force <laughs> like yeah the power as they call it it's actually quite funny because i think some of the book's translations do refer yeah. to it as the force and that always makes me laugh art is basically force push <laughs> if you're a star wars nerd <laughs> like um like it's it's normal mad like proper magic insofar as like this universe's lore is concerned yeah. has to involve like the transference of like power from like one one source to like a you know target so like for instance you have a to draw the power height. of like a, a fucking flower to make a make a rock levitate which is something you'll see in later episodes you usually usually wizards draw power from underwater source underground sources of water because they're basically everywhere like uh so as long as you're standing on the ground that like is something you can do uh, yes. Like, um, yeah. But the the difference is that signs basically don't require this because they're so mm. basic that like mm -hmm. you don't even need to draw from anywhere. You just do them. They're cantrips. Like, uh, and that's that's what Geralt does. He doesn't actually know how to use yeah, magic. Yeah, witchers proper. just um, use these sort of basic abilities that anyone who is trained could use. This is where we have been sort of fun in games until this point. But yes. uh, Renfri now arrives on the scene with a sword to Morelka's neck. Yes. And Rilke is screaming for help from Geralt. Yet, by the way, where like where like Geralt says, "If we cross swords," and Renfri finishes his sentence for him because she's seen it before. I won't be able to stop. It's so great because it's both that she's seen it and both that they are yes. so the same that they understand they 
each other and like, understand like what happens other, when they're they blood that's hot and they put into words how in tune they are and like yeah, how the same they are in case we haven't picked it up renfrey says uh you know we're not so different um um, they created me just as they created you. Yeah. Someone had like dug up a, a, a tweet that I thought was fantastic, which was basically just like, uh, so the impression I'm getting from The Witcher is that is that Geralt just keeps falling in love with women who remind him of either himself or his <laughs> mom. And Renfrey is definitely yes, Renfrey is definitely the the, himself. Yeah, yeah, she is so much himself. I mean, that line, they created me just as they created you, is so great because she isn't even talking about her mutation. She's talking about, like, her trauma and what the world has done to her and what the world has done to him. Like, she's not even talking about them as mutants and as magical beings. She's talking about them as, like, traumatized orphans. Yeah, because this isn't really... I don't think the TV series goes into an enormous amount of depth, but the books certainly do. And it's like, they talked earlier about, oh, witchers don't have any feelings, do they? They've all lost them and when you get into the lore of how witchers are created it's like I, th- I think that's just trauma really i don't think it's spells that have made them numb and despairing people yeah i mean to be totally honest in the, in the predominant it's it's just a misconception because like it's true that like they don't feel a lot of physical pain it's sort of numbed for them but but they don't but they absolutely fucking feel emotions that that is just not rooted yeah. out of them yeah, I think this is gonna. This is something I've talked about sort of on my Twitter feed a lot, um, and it's something that I'm probably gonna keep hitting through the show. Is that this whole thing about you know Geralt in particular and Witchers in general as these like ultra masculine characters who are raised in this all male environment with no sort of female influences and who are meant to be super strong and super tough and have no vulnerabilities and also no emotions is such like an interesting metaphor for what patriarchy does to men and tells men they have to be basically about patriarchal expectations of men i think it's interesting also like in lore how it's like um like it it sort of ties into how in lore it is sort of justified why witchers exist like because uh it's basically stated that they emerged as a caste if you will like um when humans started landing on the continent and they started you know penetrating into really like wild places where really dangerous things lurked and they needed a vanguard essentially like that like that that can like go in and you know clear out all the fucking werewolves and striggers that are like lurking in the dark that also makes them a tool of imperialism and colonialism it kind of does but like also also i think it's more it's like less about that more like about like you know medieval land reclamation you know how like like even even in our real world like you know there there are there there Mm -hmm. are jokes about how like uh, in the middle ages if you really wanted to die you could just like um, take some meat with you and go to the forest, and the wolves will eventually find you. I'm from Canada. We can still do that. <laughs> you can still do that, yeah. but like in medieval Europe as well, like uh, even like in the absence of like a colonial like uh, sort of circumstance, so much of it was covered by forest. Like, um, like I come from Lithuania, which hilariously like was sort of uh, had had gained so- something of a weird notoriety mm-hmm. for this to the point where like if you look at like Renaissance maps of Europe, like uh, the great forests of Siberia start where the Lithuanian border starts, like <laughs> and just continue <laughs> eastward, <laughs> like. Um, so is it sort of painted as here be dragons? Yeah, yeah, but like specifically as here be forests as well, because like so, so much of the country, like like Lithuanian. 
parts of it was like actually sort of a religious thing because Lufadia was the last like sort of pagan nation in Europe. So like Lufadians until for the lo- for a much longer time were actually quite uh like you know how do you put this squeamish about chopping down too much forest because then the gods will get angry. Like also like even later on, um, a lot of like a lot of how Lufadian agriculture worked was that the land was fertile enough that you didn't need to chop down a lot of forest to like produce enough like um so um a lot of the countryside was very fucking wild land and i think like sapkowski is actually tapping more into that sort of eastern european uh history of that where like uh in the middle ages as you venture into like out of like the very very small zone that you can call civilization you find yourself in a wilderness that is genuinely dangerous to mankind. Well, I mean, like, it, that, that goes back to all of the, like, folk stories about, like, um, you know, outlaws in the forest. You've got your Robin Hood being able to defy, um, you know, defy the rulers because he's in the forest and you can't penetrate the forest. I mean, in the, in the Canadian context, our entire um, sort of history is about sort of, and this is why I always, I can't read this without a colonial lens because I come from Canada, that our entire history of trying to tame the forest is also tied in with exterminating the indigenous people, which I will say when we get into next episode, I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, there are some tropes where Sapkowski at, at, at best and wittingly, at worst, knowingly, like, drew on in, in writing some things in The Witcher. Like, and and yeah, like it's it's completely valid point to, to raise. Um, I just think it's also like interesting how like there's actually something to be said for how like at least witchers seem to like be explicitly have been devised not necessarily directly for colonial names because despite everything, their order does seem to right from the earliest days not hunt yes. non-humans and they just don't even necessarily monsters. kill um, sentient monsters if they can just get them to go away and leave people alone like, yeah. so there's a weird like ecological strain going on there as well which I kind of appreciate like uh... yeah which does bring us back to this fight with Renfrey which does unfortunately end with him killing her yes Um. so my question for you guys because I have thoughts about this mm-hmm. is so obviously the way that the fight plays out it doesn't look like we've seen what it looks like when he's really trying and it doesn't look like he's really trying um as much as you could kill her at about four different points yeah and he just like keeps stopping and he's got like his face is very calm like he doesn't look like he's trying until of course she basically about to put down his sword and she goes for him with the dagger and he reverses it and plunges it into her neck how intentional do you think that last move was? Because I still don't even think that was intentional. I think that was just like his hand reacted before he could even think about it. To some degree, I think maybe you're right, but also like, I'm gonna be real here. When I watch that scene every time, I go, Geralt easily could have just grabbed that dagger and thrown it away. Like, I genuinely don't think he needed to push back that hard into well, her. This is what, does he not think it feeds into the fact that maybe actually there was something to her having an influential mutant where she was genuinely on some level stopping him from killing her. Heart oh from killing him. gosh, maybe that's a good point. Because I, like you know, we, she obviously does have well, some kind of mutation. Axie on she's her. magic resistant. She's when prophetic. he does that bit of magic, he's trying yeah. to use the axie sign on her. And in the games, and the book, the axie sign is you trying to. It's like a Jedi mind trick, basically. I think I think it's actually I think it's actually almost believable that it's possible that like Renfrey does have a, a mutation that like how do you put this, makes her likable to people. Uh, like, but I, I'm not sure, like, how fucking overtly it works. I don't think she can really control it, to be honest. 
it would certainly be really funny if it turned out that, like, uh, Stregobor is just a fucking idiot because the only mutation she had was sex appeal. Like, <laughs> like, like, oh yeah, everyone wants to follow her for some reason. I don't get why. This, this attractive, uh, talented woman, <laughs> like, uh... <laughs> no, no logical explanation. <laughs> like, there is no logical explanation for why a charismatic woman like yeah. you know like this like uh, smart, knows how to talk charismatic to people <laughs> yeah. would ever gain followers <laughs> yeah her problem is literally that she has an 18 in charisma <laughs> like she she was she was rolling to be honest i think she has more i think it was a case of her her character creator was rolling a d20 instead of instead of instead of four d6s and rolled a 20. <laughs> So either way, unfortunately, this results in Geralt killing her, however unintentionally or sort of last minute intentionally, because there was no way out of it that might have been. Um, and so he, he kills her and her last words are, the, the girl in the woods will be with you always, she is your destiny. And obviously these are words that, like, Geralt, this being, like, 40 years back, like, has no fucking idea what they mean. He's just, like, red free. This is probably meaningful, but, like, what are you saying? Yeah, and I mean, I must must be, like, I often wonder if, until he knew what it was, I wonder if he thought she meant herself, because yeah. he meets her repeatedly in the woods. Yeah, he sleeps with her in the woods. So I don't know if he's, like, trying to think, what girl in the woods? You're the only girl in the woods I knew. Did I just kill someone who is, like, deeply entangled with my... Yeah. Yeah. At the very least, I'm sure that he wondered about what it means. Yeah, I will. Ha- yeah, it's like, like, is she cursing me? Is she saying that my destiny is to be forever haunted by her? Yeah, because yes, this is quite far in the past from when he finds out what his destiny is, and of course, this cuts straight to Siri uh, escaping from from the the knight on horseback. So Siri uh, gets intercepted by Kahir, obviously, and then I think we cut back to Blaviken, don't we? So this yes. is the, this is something I want to ask. You see all those op- weird obsidian pillars that Sintran, that the Sintran landscape is apparently littered with. What are they? Like, 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 like I, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I think there was like a massive obsidian pillar that, like, the tower, that the, the, the high tower of like the castle is built Like, Cthulhu? Is this our, like... And it's just yeah. like, okay, very cool, not gonna lie, but this is an innovation. That's not anywhere else in the lore, and I just want to know thought process of like yeah. how you came to that, that idea yeah because you know? in the books doesn't yeah. she just run away into the forest like she gets she's trapped under a horse or something kahir pulls her out and then she gets away from him yeah. somehow and just runs away into the forest yeah yes um so then so yeah she uses her magic which she seems to at least have some idea that if she's like intensely emotionally distressed and channels it yeah. some way she can i think she doesn't even fully understand what just happened like i think she's in um trouble. and is able to sort of open a rift in the ground between her and her captor and run into the into the woods well, she knows magic exists because she's seen mouse sack yeah exactly and just like she just seems to have she seems to like be intentionally screaming so she seems to have some idea that like being channeling her distress can do something but she has no idea what's really going on yeah she never thinks yeah never again does she think like for the rest of the series basically oh i can do magic like it just sort of is something that happens when she's like in a moment of panic and trauma and then yeah so it cuts back to uh the final scene um, which is in Blaviken with the aftermath of Stregobor. the fight with uh, So he wants to dissect her and gain control of her mutation. This is, this is the thing about the mutation, right? Like, this is where Stregobor basically says, we need to extract it. And it's just like, okay, but why? 
if you're not like going to use it for something. Yes. Yes. And so Geralt takes a sword to Stregobor and uh, is basically trying to defend the dignity of Renfri's like body and I mean yeah, the objective is she's... just fucking like drawn it on drawn his sword on him while in his tower. But, he like... really should have. Ugh, he should have cut Stregobor down at the start of the episode. Problem solved. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but Geralt doesn't choose sides. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so Stregobor basically accuses Geralt of being brainwashed by Renfri. Yeah. So says, you know, she got to you, didn't she? Um Yes, for having, you know, basic, like, compassion and, like, respect for, like, human life. Uh, And then taunts him and says, you made a choice and you'll never know if it was the right one. Yes. And by the way, this is an interesting thing, because that that was initially Renfri's word. So what I think is happening there, and I realized this when I was watching today, I think Stregobor is reading Geralt's mind. Yes. Yeah. Like, I think I think that's that's Stregobor reading Geralt's mind, which is intrusive in its own kind yes, of way. Yes, because we, as we know from well, later, sorcerers can do that. Yeah. So the thing that stuck with me about this scene the most is where is this this moment with Marilka, where you know she was like the girl who wasn't afraid of him, the girl who thought it was funny that other people called him like a monster and a mutant, and uh, you know thought it would be funny to like learn about him and like walk around with him and like be like oh it's too bad girls can't be witchers she turns on him and says you know get out of blaviken girl never come back what's interesting to me is the first time i saw this i took this as okay this is marilka who you know kills dogs mercilessly and is quite cold and works for Stregobor, but she's crying in this scene. Yeah, and to be totally honest, I think to be to, to be totally honest, I don't think Maruk is trying to do a bad thing here. I think Maruk is actually trying to save Geralt from further like how do you put this inconvenience. She's just reinforcing that like Geralt, you might want to leave. Yes, because yeah, they're getting eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, this is going to go bad really quickly. But, like, for Geralt, I don't think he sees that that's what she's doing, because he just crumples here. He crumples when she says that, and then he looks down at Renfrey, and he's like, you know, even this, you know, this other person who was, you know, nice to me, and yeah, yeah. Uh, thought it was so. cool that I was a witcher, and wasn't didn't look away from me and call me a monster, she's telling me to leave, was Renfrey the only person who ever understood and saw me, mm. and I've just killed her. Yeah. yeah. Our poor, beautiful book. Oh, I know. It makes me so sad. Oh, poor Geralt. And then, of course, he takes the brooch. And uh, we get this last scene of Siri running through the woods um, with Renfri saying, you know, the girl in the woods will be with you always. Like, the, the, thing, the thing that gets to me about this episode is that every time I do watch it, I am the more confident yeah. that this particular story it's, was that well. It's an efficient well. episode that came uh, Like, it this, like, so like, like, I generally, like, get more confident about, like, how it's been adapted. Because, like, the first time... I think, like, just because, like, the first time I was watching, I was watching with a, li- with a little bit of, like, I didn't really want to admit the, to myself, but apprehension, because I was hoping that everything is adapted well. Like, um, so, like, I was, like, nitpicking at details, but, like, then I watched the second time, and I was like, oh, actually, yeah. this is a very, very good adaptation. Like, like, because, like, the first time I liked it, but there were certain things that, like, jarred for me. Like, mm-hmm. certain lines se- seemed like they... Uh, they've replaced two lines Geralt says in the book with just, like cuts out one of cut out one of them right like so the other sounds a little bit more stale like when like I distanced myself a little bit from the source material and watched it the second time I was like nah nah actually like you know it wasn't actually that necessary line it's fine 
see, for me was, this is, you know, I came to this with no expectations. I'm probably the only fantasy nerd in the world who hasn't yeah, played yeah. any of the yeah. games. Of um, I came to it without having even, like, the slightest preconception of the books. So I didn't have that sort of uh, baggage, I guess, the first time I watched it. Um, so for me, I was able to just sort of like fall into this, just like this amazingly put together story that had um, a lot of world building and a lot of um, really interesting things to say about um, morality and non-intervention and about um, sort of humanity and what sort of makes a monster, um, you know, the central, I guess, question of the episode is you know when you know Stregamore says like you know the worst kind of monster the human kind well which of these humans is the monster it's Stregamore um, so it's just like and it's just like it, it creates this this you can you can watch this episode having absolutely no basis in the lore whatsoever and pick up just a massive amount of of world building and understand the rules of this world a little bit um, and I just, I just think they just did an incredible job of, of doing that for sort of someone who was like completely virgin to yeah, the story. Yeah, I mean, story. certainly I was like, I, I like, like though, I was very uh, angsty about how it would turn up. Like after the trailers, I was broadly content that it was going to be at least serviceable. But then uh, like I was, I thought the way they'd played Renfrey off and the way they played Geralt and the way they did and everything, it was like, yeah, they're, they're going to make a decent stab at this at least. Like, if this is the pilot, if this is the first episode where generally things are shown and generally they're still figuring everything out, mm -hmm. it's like, it'll probably be all right. <laughs> I'll be content with this. I'm really impressed. I mean, not to talk about future episodes, but just the general qualities. I'm really impressed with um, how, I think, tight the, the production was in terms of everything coming together really well and the, the, the you know, great directing, great sort of writing, show running. Um, I think there's, like, the team seems to have a real under. Now that I've read the books, most of them, the team feels like they have a real understanding of the text. And I know everyone's tired of the Game of Thrones ref Game of Thrones references, but I think there's a real understanding of the text yeah. by the production yeah. team for this in a way that just didn't exist with Game of Thrones. And that's partly because I have issues with their showrunners, but also partly because they didn't have a complete text to work from. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm just, I'm, yeah, from just this first episode, I was just like all in and pretty much like gun to the whole show. And with that, I think we'll just wrap up here. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time when we discuss season one, episode two, Four Marks. Our music is Medieval Abstraction by Lucas Perny and Miloslav Kolar. And you can find it at freemusicarchive.org. And you can find us on Twitter at The Witcher Cast and also on Tumblr at The Witcher Cast. See you next time. <laughs>